0: This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Here in early May of 2022, things are happening in the background regarding the Michelle Lawless murder. I wish I could tell you more, but the progress that is happening is sensitive, and I can't really talk about it. Some of this progress, if it comes to fruition, will take some time to develop, so we have to be patient. But as I sit here today, I'm confident the case will have some big moments in the coming year. One thing that happened recently, as in the last week of April, is that Josh Keezer met with an attorney in charge of the investigation with the Missouri Attorney General's office. He's the man in charge of the investigation with the cold case unit. I think that's a good sign that the AG's office is moving forward with some investigation. But bigger picture, it's an amazing part of the story when you really contemplate this moment as part of a story arc. You have the man who was wrongfully convicted, Josh Kieser, walking into a meeting with the Attorney General Prosecutor. Of course, Josh is no longer a suspect. He's been completely 100% cleared of any wrongdoing. Now he's trying to help the prosecution bring justice to Michelle's killers. No one involved in the original investigation could have imagined that the thin, 18-year-old, sometimes homeless kid from Kankakee would be a free man in 2022 pushing for the conviction in this case. The man who was railroaded by the state of Missouri is meeting with the same jurisdiction that employed then-prosecutor Kenny Holshoff. It really is an amazing story. Another significant thing happened just a few weeks ago. Scott City's government leadership announced that Rick Walter was hired to be the police chief in Scott City. Walter had been working in the private security world before returning to law enforcement. Just a note for those who are not from the area, Michelle Lawless was murdered just outside of Benton, And the jurisdiction of that case lies with Scott County, not Scott City. Scott City is about 8 or so miles north of the murder site. And it's the northernmost township in the county. Scott City is where Mark Abbott lived at the time of the murder, and Mark Abbott's parents still live in Scott City, just a couple blocks from Walter. Walter won't have an active role in the lawless investigation going forward as far as I know, because it's outside of his jurisdiction. But it's an interesting development that Walter is again working as a law enforcement officer in Scott County. Speaking of ongoing cases and the Abbott's, as far as I know, there have been no updates at all on the mysterious disappearance of David Todd, who was reported missing in late December of 2020 from Kelso, Missouri, just south of Scott City. If you recall, Todd was driving a truck owned by Mark Abbott and living in the trailer park owned by Abbott's parents. And another interesting update here, not related to anything else. But just a few days ago, I learned that a man named multiple times in the speed bump files as a significant meth dealer had his sentence commuted by President Joe Biden. Brandon Todd Berry of Sykeston, Missouri, was sentenced to 20 years in prison in 2010. Biden's commutation has shortened his term by roughly eight years, and Berry will be released in August of this year. His 10-year term of supervised release will remain in effect. Barry, one of 80 to receive shorter sentences from Biden, was one of five Missourians to make the clemency list. Barry was not sentenced as part of Speed Bump, but he was named many times throughout the files. He was only 19 or 20 years old at the time. He did face state charges around that time, but only served about a year. The files show he was very familiar with Kevin Williams. So this makes Barry the second friend of Kevin Williams to receive a pardon or commuted sentence from the President of the United States. I don't think necessarily the two things are connected, I just can't make my mind go there, but it does raise some eyebrows. Unfortunately, our government is not transparent for the reasons why pardons or commuted sentences are handed out. Applications and documents associated with the decisions are not part of the public record. I continue to reach out to sources for interviews, and I hope to bring you more. Some sources are still unsure about being recorded for interviews. I did have a chance to interview Jim Solins a few weeks ago. Solins was the private investigator who uncovered much of the original information on which the Lawless Files is based. I was hoping he would have access to his old files and recordings, but he said he gave all that stuff to the governor's office many years ago. That would have been the Mel Carnahan administration. And that's really a shame. I have no idea how to get those records. I think there's some really important evidence in those materials. Solins investigated this case two times. One that started in the mid to late 90s after Josh was convicted. And then he picked up the case once again after Jane Williams contacted him. In both investigations, Jim Solans recorded interviews. And I think those interviews are hugely important. So if they exist out there, I'd really like to get my hands on them. Unfortunately, we don't know where they're located. So as we go forward, there are some heavy topics that I want to address. And it will take some time to get some of those episodes reported and put together. But just a heads up that the format of the podcast will change a little bit from week to week from here on out. But for now, since we're caught up in the timeline, I wanted to go back. And I mean way back. I wanted to go way back to the time of Al Capone and the outfit in Chicago. To a time that predates Michelle's murder by 30 or more years. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files.
0: I went around the car to the driver's side and opened up the door, and that's uh, when we saw Michelle. So Mark Abbott a suspect
1: who was killing? No, sir. He, he had said that his friend might have been a policeman or a sheriff or something like that.
0: And I didn't take but a split second. I said, huh, that's not Mark. I said, that's you Matt. Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampire door printing. Why was that not done? So he's like, hey, man, I saw this murder in the news. They don't know who did it. Let's tell them Josh did it. I don't know.
2: I, I don't know that they weren't. It seemed like pretty much anything was for sale down there. I, I don't know. At the right price.
0: He said, uh, you know, he said, Bill's been in there long enough. You know, he's made enough money. He says, it's about time a younger man gets in there. He said, like you, you can get in there and make some good Paychecks money. from a bullshit. They job. never investigated me. They merely put me on trial and told the jury they had.
1: Before we step back into the criminal history time machine, I want to dig out this sound from earlier in the podcast. This is Rick Walter talking about an incident from the year 2000 when he was campaigning for the first time for sheriff. He would lose the race against Bill Farrell, but it was close enough that Walter decided to try again four years later.
0: I didn't really know Larry. Uh, Didn't know any of the events at all. That was in 2000, year 2000. I was in Scott City just um, walking door to door and had crossed the parking lot, this parking lot of the, the little service station, self-serve I guess. And there was three guys was uh, out in the parking lot by the, by this vehicle and anyway, I introduced myself and I told them I was running for sheriff. And uh, the other two left don't know who it was. I don't remember their ages. I, I don't remember anything about them. Uh, but after that, um, he introduced himself, told me who he was. And, uh, he said, uh, you know, he said, Bill's been in there long enough. You know, he's made enough money. He says about time a younger man gets in there. He said, like you, you can get in there and make some good money. Uh, I knew what the salary was. I, I, I guess I really wasn't following exactly what he meant. Um, and I guess you can interpret that any way you want to. Uh, but uh, he, I guess he thought I knew who he was because he told me that a lot of times he does a lot of deals and has, does a lot of cash deals and, and that he, we walked over to his truck and he opened up a, a briefcase and uh, it, was, it was a lot of money in that briefcase. And with him, you know, I, you call that a clue, I guess, with him talking about it's time that somebody else makes some good, could make some good money, um, and he has to do a lot of cash deals and he carries cash with him all the time. Um, it was time for me to exit, that make an exit. And I shook his hand. I said, I appreciate, uh, appreciate your vote and left. And, and didn't have any other interaction with him. Didn't go back, didn't want to talk to him after that. Uh, it just didn't sound right to me at all.
1: The Abbott family has roots with the mafia. We're talking direct associations with mob bosses, thugs, and hitmen. I addressed this somewhat in an earlier episode, and I find it all very fascinating. Some of you may be wondering what this has to do with the Michelle Lawless case, and my answer is, maybe nothing. Or maybe something. And even if it's something, it probably has much more to do with why certain players weren't held accountable rather than why Michelle was murdered. There are a couple things to consider when examining how criminal culture of one era might lead to the next. The Abbott family definitely had connections to the Mafia. The Mafia's illegal activities included gambling, theft, extortion, prostitution, and most likely drug movement dating back to at least the 1960s. That's over 50 years ago. These mobster roots date back to before the Abbott twins were born. This is the environment in which Mark and Matt Abbott were raised, Another thing to consider is how these illegal activities evolved over time, the churn of the players, and the evolution of the roles. Regardless, as time passed, illegal money continued to flow through southeast Missouri and southern Illinois. So the question is, do mobsters still have an influence today? It seems as if the organized crime network has dissipated, or at least changed so dramatically as to not be recognizable from its roots. Organized crime today doesn't look like it did when Capone ran things. Two of the most important players in all the mob activity in the bi-state region were men who were born and raised in Sykeston, Missouri, the largest city in Scott County. Those men are Art and George Garner. They were both ruthless. Both were believed to be murderers. Both, especially George, was a known arsonist and extortionist, and both, according to the book Sins of the South by Maureen Hughes, reported directly to Buster Wirtman, a mafia boss located in the St. Louis region. Wertman controlled southern Illinois and reported directly to Capone himself. One former drug dealer who operated in the 1970s and 80s told me that the Garners were more independent agents, but I think it's a combination. From newspaper articles I've read, plus a source who knew Art Garner, as well as Hughes' book, the Garners worked directly for Wartman. But it's also been reported that the Garners did side jobs for other players. That includes, according to my source, the family of the late Judge Jerry Briggs, which was busted for a major drug dealing ring in 1984. We'll get to that in a minute. Is this Virginia? Yeah. Virginia, this is Bob Miller. Do you have a minute to talk? Yeah. I had the pleasure of visiting with Virginia Douglas a couple of years ago before I had decided to do a podcast. Virginia knew Art Garner very well. She lived in Southern Illinois at the time of all of these mafia activities. She worked as a bartender to earn money to support her children. Virginia also taught dance lessons. She was a fly on the wall who witnessed a lot, and I was grateful she was willing to share some of her knowledge with me. Virginia passed away in October of 2021. Okay. She told me you knew some stuff about kind of the old, uh, the old days with, uh, Art and George Garner and some of the stuff they did with the Mafia. Well, I don't know if they were actually in the
2: Mafia,
1: but yeah, I knew about them and his sister-in-law was my best friend. So what do you remember about them? Were they just trouble, or were they nice guys, but just did, you know, kind of hard work, or what? Oh, they weren't nice guys. <laughs> but, you know what I mean, they could be nice in person, but then just, you know, they had they go off and do horrible, horrible things. The best thing I can say about... In their business. they did Did you ever talk to them or did they ever Oh my god, yeah. Yeah. not not George. I think one time in my life I talked to George. Yeah. So what uh so you so you uh talked more with art what what kinds of things did did he own a hotel or something? He owned the rail I think. So what kind of things was Art into? Don't
2: know. He didn't tell me. Okay. (laughs) Thank God I didn't want to know.
1: So let's review a little regional geography. Cairo, Illinois, is the southernmost city in Illinois. It's located at the confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. From there, you can access Kentucky and Missouri. The town back in previous decades was a bustling place for commerce. Today, its riverfront and downtown area is practically a ghost town. Cairo, Sykeston, Missouri, and Cape Girardeau, Missouri, form a triangle. It's about a 30-minute drive from Sykeston to Cape Girardeau and about a 30-minute drive from Sykeston to Cairo. The city of Cairo connects all the way up to East St. Louis via Route 3, which hugs the eastern side of the Mississippi River. This route was very important decades ago, especially before Interstate 55 was built on the Missouri side of the river. Mafia members would often stake out places on Route 3 and hijack trucks. And many popular nightclubs were built along Route 3 and other highways along the rather sparse land of southern Illinois. These nightclubs were typically owned by mobsters and they were super popular, People loved to go eat and dance there. But they were not only places to dine and dance, but they were also havens for illegal gambling. Maureen Hughes reported that wealthy cotton farmers and businessmen from southeast Missouri were well known to cross the river to gamble in the underground high-stakes poker games. first mention I could find in newspaper archives of Mafia involvement in Southern Illinois was back in 1948. The St. Louis Globe Democrat reported that Buster Workman and the Chicago outfit had ties to East Cape Girardeau. Here's how the newspaper reported the story. Quote, working in gangland style, three hoodlums held up the Colony Club gambling resort, North of Cairo, Illinois at 4am and escaped with $15,000 cash. The article added the Colony Club, just outside East Cape Girardeau, had flourished since war days and was reported to be receiving protection from the East Side Capone gangsters. The victims were tied up with bedsheets. The newspaper reported that Frank Buster Wortman, who was called the enforcement officer for the Southern Illinois Capone gang, held up the joint and left an IOU. Wortman took over the Southern Illinois territory after the once prominent Shelton gang lost its grip. Carl Shelton, leader of that gang, was killed by machine gun fire on his farm. So, so you were, you lived in Southern Illinois back then? Or were- yeah. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. So, were were people, what was it like living back then? It was it, Were people kind of fearful of the uh, the gangster life? Oh, yeah. But if you, like I said, you
2: were only fearful if you stuck your nose in their business. Yeah. You get your nose out of it, they, they're not going to bother you. They're not looking for trouble with you. they They're intent upon making money off gambling and whatever.
1: Yeah. And at
2: at that time, running stolen whiskey and all that stolen goods. You're talking about days in the 20s, 30s. I wasn't even born yet. I was born for 38. 20s, 30s, 40s. They talk about. His operation was before my time, but, hey, he killed a
1: boy when he wasn't but 15 years old and went to the pen. Right. And he was running stolen shit for money. And, hey,
2: you're talking about times back in Depression days, nobody had any money. You get right. whatever you could do to eat. Yep.
1: The Garner name made an appearance in news clippings in 1960 when Jake Rubin, a Cairo nightclub owner, was shot and killed in his bar. It was reported at the time that George A. Garner, formerly of Sykeston and by that time a Cairo coin machine distributor, fired the shot. A witness reported that Garner grabbed Rubin, pressed a gun to his head, and fired. Garner was later arrested at his home. Garner denied the shooting. The Associated Press reported that Garner was an associate of former Cairo policeman, who made national headlines when he confessed to a robbery in Georgia for which another man had been sentenced to death. Meanwhile, Garner had been fighting extradition to North Carolina since 1955 on charges of murder, burglary, and armed robbery. The indictment alleged that the victim died of a heart attack while Garner held a gun on him during a robbery of the victim's store. As for the Rubin shooting, Garner received a sentence of eight years. The book Sins of the South described the Garner brothers as, quote, Craps and poker dealers in back rooms of business and taverns. Residing in southeast Missouri, the wannabe criminals sought more lucrative employment with Buster Wortman. The brothers idolized Wortman and the action they had heard about. They wanted their ties and authority to come directly from Buster Wortman. end quote. George was described as a psycho who would drink alone at bars. He was also a pimp for prostitutes he kept at various clubs in which he held financial interest. Hughes, the Sons of the South author, went on to write that the Garners were first hired to hijack trucks, but they soon became a respected team in the arson-for-hire business. Indeed, I found reports where George Garner was found with dynamite in his car. They used the threat of arson, and worse, to extort money from businesses, even legitimate ones. Hughes wrote, quote, If businesses would not fork over payments for George and Art's protection, the owners were told something bad could happen to their establishment. Typically, Hughes reported, businesses were given two warnings. If they didn't pay for protection, they would suffer the consequences. Arsons were widely reported back then, especially at bars and nightclubs. Hughes wrote that the payoffs were divided with Wirtman in Cape Girardeau, who then sent a percentage onto to Capone in Chicago. The book also noted that Wertman and the Garners had influence over the unions. Wertman tapped into the big unions and the Garners hit on the smaller unions. Garner and Jake Rubin, before he was murdered, helped East Coast mobsters distribute garment shipments that had been hijacked. <laughs> In 1965, Virgil Abbott's name made an appearance in the news. The Southern Illinois newspaper reported that E.L. Buddy Buddy Harris tried to gouge out the eyes of a coin machine operator named Donald Phillips. Phillips said he and another person were sitting in a small truck when Harris and a man named Lou Rubin, quote, pulled into a no parking zone and jumped out like gangbusters, unquote. Phillips said they were in a two-tone car and behind them was Virgil Abbott of Cape Girardeau, Missouri, who Phillips said was an employee of Buddy Buddy Enterprises, a coin machine business. So if you're like me, you're probably wondering what's up with the coin machines. Hughes described it this way in her book. The popularity of vending machines in the cities gave Wortman new ideas for ventures as he saw a huge financial market for vending machines in communities around the cities and small towns. He invested heavily in various coin-operated machines. Pennies and nickels provided Wertman with thousands of dollars in revenue when collected on a weekly and monthly basis by his collector George Garner. Add to that the hijacked trucks carrying whiskey and cigarettes and bottled soda, the Garner brothers, Wertman and Capone made out very well in Southern Illinois. End quote. The coin-operated machines include cigarette machines, pinball machines, illegal slot machines, and all sorts of vending machines. They were installed in restaurants, nightclubs, taverns, and stores. The machines provided big revenue for the Mafia. The business owner generally kept 40% of the proceeds, and the rest of the 60% went to the owner of the vending machines, which was ultimately Wortman and the Mafia. The cash flow also gave the mob a way to launder money. And Wortman controlled the competition by force, putting out hits on actors who either tried to leave Wortman's gang and establish their own territories, or anyone simply trying to make money on vending machines in the area. The message was simple, if you tried to go against workmen in the coin machine business, you were risking your life. Hughes also reported in her book that county lawyers, local cops, politicians, and judges were all in on the scheme. Her book, however, did not delve into southeast Missouri much at all. The focus was on southern Illinois. She specifically named Cairo City Police and Alexander County officers as those who looked the other way and let the Garner brothers operate with impunity. The Mafia made so much money through extortion and the vending business that they began to give out loans. So businesses that couldn't get loans from the bank often took out loans from the Mafia. Problem is, is if you missed a payment, well that was not going to be tolerated. George and Art Garner made sure of that. So the Garners were the extortionists, they were the arsonists, and sometimes the murderers. The Sykes and Boys played a crucial role for the Mafia. Their violence was the key to the fear that led to the money. They were both raised in Sykeston. George lived in Cairo for some time, but Art lived in Sykeston where he owned a hotel. In fact, he once shot someone in the face. The victim survived, but he didn't press charges. Art spent one night in jail over the incident. The victim was allegedly trying to sell drugs to children at the hotel. trying to, to understand I know at one time Virgil worked for Buddy Buddy Harris that was I don't know if he did or not well it was it was in newspapers and he testified in court as such and then I know well, what they testified in court what actually happened yeah could be two different things uh-huh. and then um, I know that it was also reported that George Garner was doing work for Buddy Buddy Harris, so I, I kind of thought that they were, oh, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that ain't right. They worked for the workmen, Buster workmen out of St. Louis. Okay. That was big time, would not that these small little boogers around here? In 1968, Howard Baker, described as a vending machine distributor, was driving north on Highway 3 near East Cape Girardeau when he was ambushed. His truck was riddled with bullet holes from a machine gun, and his truck was found crashed into a ditch. Five bullets hit Baker in the chest. He was pronounced dead at a Cape Girardeau hospital. Baker, who had survived what appeared to be a different murder attempt the previous year, was under indictment at the time for two counts of conspiracy, two counts of theft, and one count of battery, the newspaper reported. He was accused of stealing 2,000 cartons of cigarettes from a warehouse. Also the previous year, one of Baker's employees had filed a charge of aggravated battery against Buddy Buddy Harris following a fight. Remember, Buddy Buddy Harris was Virgil Abbott's boss. That assault charge was dropped, but clearly there was bad blood there. Shortly after the fight, Baker's warehouse was bombed. This all sounds like something from a movie, but it was the culture of Southern Illinois back then. In fact, this was the culture across the U.S. at the time. These bombings, these hijacked trucks, illegal gambling rings, and swanky nightclubs were quite common. A lot of these tactics that were used in Southern Illinois were similar to that of the Dixie Mafia back in the same era. In fact, the podcast In the Red Clay goes into great detail about how gangsters operated in Georgia during the same time period. There are many common threads. As for Baker's murder, I've heard two sources with connections to the Abbott family that it was discussed in family circles that Virgil Abbott played a role in Baker's murder. Others believe that one of the Gardner brothers executed the hit, but it's possible that both things are true, that one individual drove the vehicle and the other shot the machine gun out the passenger window. If what these sources say is true, the Virgil Abbott, Mark and Matt Abbott's grandfather, got away with murder. It's clear that Baker was involved in these underground activities and most likely understood the risks he was taking. Even still, he left behind two children and a wife. I, I know that George, um, at one point, was associated with uh, Buddy Buddy Harris, Oh, God, that was in the Betty Betty Harris. Yeah. Um, And I know that the Virgil Abbott was also working. Oh, he'd like to be. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know about Virgil? Nothing much.
2: He yeah. just wanted to be bad. He wasn't bad. He wanted everybody. son he still wants everybody to think he's
1: against. How did you come to that opinion? Oh, I'm doing. Oh, okay. I used to buy stuff from his wife she ran a wig shop, a dress shop. How did they try to portray that? Like you say that they wanted everybody to think that. How did how did he do oh, that? He gets in a small town and tries to scare people in small town. Cause I had heard that he was involved in the killing of Howard Baker. Uh, lie. Okay. Lie, lie, lie. How do you know that? I just know. <laughs> well, I've heard it from two family members, but like you say, if they're just trying to, you know, create the yeah, image. No way. Um. Howard and Barbara, I knew well.
2: Uh, their son took dance lessons. Live around the
1: corner from me, and Howard set up my uh, PA system for my dance recital a couple of years. So, so how do you how do you well? Who do you think killed Howard Baker? Then hmm. it was a buddy buddy. No, was it George or Art? Yeah did Did one of them tell you that? No. Okay. They don't go around and say, Ha-ha, I killed so and so last night. They're not stupid. Right. People that do that are stupid. Uh, you know, Art and uh, George are both long gone. Is there anything that you can tell me about why you think that they were involved in Mr. Baker's murder? I
2: don't know why Howard got in that mess he was another one that wanted to be a gangster well he became one yeah and I hated it I I liked the man personally because I didn't have any (laughs) her <laughs> uh, brother
1: took dancing for me yep. he wanted to take
2: pack dancing and like <laughs>
1: Year that bakard was murdered george garner was indicted by a scott county grand jury on charges of illegal possession of a bombing device and illegally carrying a concealed weapon he was arrested by the missouri state police the southern Illinoisan reported that garner faced other charges in union county connected to buddy buddy harris again that was virgil abbott's boss so we have garner and abbott tied to the same guy On the other side of the river in Scott County, there were no obvious signs of gangster activities going on. In 1969, Bill Farrell was building a political resume. He was not yet sheriff, but was named vice president of the state Young Democrats at a convention in Columbia, Missouri. In the next episode of The Lawless Files, we'll get into the death of George Garner. And how his death is linked to the son of a Sykeston judge. A Sykeson judge whose family was busted for running a ten-state drug ring. A drug ring that sold marijuana, cocaine, and quaaludes. A drug ring that had been in existence for seven years. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. Thank you for
0: listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Grafe. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukachek, who helped voice the court transcripts. Again, please go to thelawlessfiles.com and subscribe.